John Calipari, one of the most polarizing and prominent head coaches in college basketball. I want to be walking in to the NBA All-Star game and half of the NBA All-Stars have played for me. From his early days at the University of Massachusetts to his position at Kentucky, he's built a reputation for turning programs around and paving the way to the NBA. If you had a son that was had pro potential, why would you want him here? The statistics. Yeah, it's results. But the Hall of Fame coach faces constant backlash for both his recruiting tactics and his views on molding players into pros. Why do you think that is? They have such an obsession with me that they just continue to write their stuff. I'm not gonna change them, I don't care. Calipari answers his critics, discusses game day superstitions. There was oatmeal at every breakfast. Okay. No raisins. If you put raisins in the oatmeal, I would go bonkers. Anytime there's raisins, you lose every time. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. I was going to start off talking about uh, growing up and then just kind of go from there. Okay. Um, And if I ask anything that sounds stupid, just tell me. Okay. Uh, We interviewed Jim Brown a while back, which aired this weekend, and, you know, if you ask a question he deems unintelligent, he just looks at you and he's like, son, move on. (laughs) It's kind of intimidating. Um, Your dad worked in the steel mill later at the airport. Your mom served food in the cafeteria. She didn't serve food. She she, uh, was the ice cream lady. Okay, ice cream lady. Yeah. Um, What did your parents teach you about work ethic? Well, my dad would work double shifts um, and then come home and work in the yard and drag me out there. Um, He was always, he never was afraid of work, Uh, would take me to work with him. Uh, Not when he was in the mill, but when he was a fueler at the airport. And what I got to see is a bunch of guys together that enjoyed being together, they did their job. One of them would stay back and cook for all the rest. So if they had a crew of seven, six would go work and cover his work. And that one guy that night would make, you know, pigs in a blanket or he'd bring up food and he'd serve. So when they'd come back to eat, one of those, you know, they did stuff like that. One guy was a barber. So one day he was not working. He cut hair the whole time, and including people's kids. They'd bring their kids in and Johnny Obusick, I can still remember his name. <laughs> I'd scream, he'd cut my hair, like, I'd, like put a bowl on your head. But what you understood was it was about people coming together. My mother saved her check. That was never used for anything except she put it in the bank. Um, we never had a credit card growing up. Um, never would extend credit that way, would never. They, they did furniture one time and five bucks a month they would give back. Um, uh, Christmas was done on uh, layaway. Like, I don't know if people know what layaway is now. They'd go get it and lay it away two months in before Christmas and then once a week go in and give them a few dollars, five dollars, whatever they had to try to pay it off before Christmas. So that was, you know, I, when I say all this, it was normal. Where I grew up, what my parents did is what everybody else's parents did. What do you remember about the actual home that you grew up in? Um, It was two bedrooms. My sisters and I, two sisters. My dad, um, right in front of the high school, literally 20 yards from the high school. There was a hill, our house, and the high school. 
and uh, which is why I got close to all the coaches because I was up there when I was in third grade and second grade and I was up to high school at the baseball field at the football field in the basketball gym uh, and my dad knew all the coaches because he played softball with them um, but the house was a I, I can't tell you square foot but I, I would imagine up and down it couldn't have been a thousand square feet maybe uh, we had two bedrooms and a hallway to the attic my dad moved the wall over two feet and my bedroom became that hallway but it was a big hallway and that and I had the you know the the uh, attic door so you had a door that went to the attic not the thing that the steps that come down now no this was a door with steps up to the attic um, scared to death I was you know you know you hear creaking and stuff and there's a door right there you're like oh my gosh right but uh, um, my sisters were in the same room. I had my own room. My parents had a, a bedroom. One bath. I mean, it was typical. There was no shower. We didn't have a shower. I mean, you had a bath. I mean, you know. What do you think you learned from growing up like that? You know, without much. Well, you in, know. In terms of material things? You know, I've, I've been in that environment and I've been in the other environment where I've had a lot of, I'll be honest, it's much better over here. Right. And, and, but it also teaches you, do you really want to go back to that? You better save, you better take care of your money, you better do what you're doing. But you also learn that you could be charitable and you don't have much. Um, and that you're, there's a responsibility when this good stuff happens to do more than you used to do because you have more. Um, but I had, I had a loving home, parents who cared about us. Um, you know, my mother was a strong woman. My dad was a grinder. My mom was the dreamer. My mother thought that I could be president of the United States. She just thought that you, if that's what you want to do, you could be president. She was the one that probably got me to dream to not be afraid to see myself even beyond where I was and that I could be in different places. You were a bit of a entrepreneur, it seemed like, growing up. I want to give a, a couple examples. One being, I believe you were in high school and you decided to run a basketball camp and raise the prices over a competitor. Didn't raise the price. I ran a basketball camp because I had a choice. I, I went to college and I was on a scholarship, but there was no other money. Like. I didn't get a Pell. I didn't, parents couldn't send me money. Mm -hmm. They gave me like 200 bucks, see you going to, however you get down there, here's $200. And you, so I had to figure out a way, how am I gonna make some money? Like I have to have some money down here. And I could either work and, you know, work in a mill, I could, uh, roofing, I could work for my uncle, I could, and I said, let me run a basketball camp, charge 25 bucks. Uh, ended up making like 1500 bucks. Um, paid speakers, ran it like it was a, you know, and it was just our community, a little community camp. And I did that through, co through college, and that's how I made $1,500, $1,800 to make it through college. I didn't, it was, again, maybe out of desperation, how do I make some money? I gotta, I gotta survive. But that's why we did it. And it ended up being great for the kids. It was, you know, I'd have our former players that I played with come back and work and uh, pay those guys and uh, but it was it was it was neat what's this I hear about you being a mobile home entrepreneur as well again by by 
it was, I, I go to Clarion University. We live in the dorms the first semester, first year. I don't want to live in the dorms. Where else can we live? My roommate finds a trailer, you know, a single trailer, in a trailer park right next to the gym. So we move in there. And what we're paying is the same of what we pay in the dorm. And when I figured out, like, this trailer can't be worth as much as we're paying to stay here. And I'm like, well, why don't we buy one? And, and I ended up buying a couple mobile homes. I'll call them, now that I own them, they were mobile homes. They weren't trailers. And uh, leased them out. And that's when I was a volunteer at Kansas. Mm -hmm. And I got no money. That $3,000 helped me survive. Because I, I, was, I was a volunteer for Ted Owens. Uh, Coach Owens, I went out to work camp. Why don't you stay? I, I got a, a staff position. What? You hire me? Yeah. As what? Volunteer. <laughs> like, what does that guy make? <laughs> so I ran the camp and I had rented out the trailers, which, you know, made a little bit of money. I had to pay the trailers off. And after that, um, I gave them, I believe I gave them to Clarion. I gave them, to, after I, I got a job, that I had a job, I gave them to the university. And you finally started making a little bit of money as a coach when Larry Brown uh, came I was to... A, I was the part-time coach. Right, so he, uh, you know, brings you on... When you're not making anything... Oh, right. And then I mean, you make just, a little, you're, you're just, like ecstatic. Right, you're just trying to survive. So he... I lived with the part-time coach for a while. I mean, uh, that's what I did. We, we shared a, an apartment, but it was, I met my wife. It was the greatest time of my life. And didn't you have to choose between uh, cable and furniture? That's in the when first I was a volunteer. Department? Okay. Volunteer. And, and because ESPN was just coming out and it was coming on the scenes and we, you know, there were games and, you know, we were sports nuts. And you had a choice between ESPN per month or furniture so we got beds because we had to have beds and then we had to, you know, pillows and crates and, you know, and stuff like that. And I think we may have had a table and chairs. But again, there was no worries. I had a Plymouth Arrow, if I remember right. But so you chose the cable over there. Absolutely. Furniture. Randolph Carroll and I were staying together at the time. And uh, yeah, I met my wife there um, during that year, as a matter of fact, when I was she had nothing and I had nothing. It's a great way to meet somebody and say, hey, is this somebody for me? Neither right. one of us have anything, so there's no like, you know. Larry Brown uh, said about you uh, back then, uh, he, he called you a cocky little kid. And you call that actually yourself, I think in one of your books that I read, brash and arrogant. What were you like back then, just starting out as a young coach? Um, driven. Um, into basketball, uh, curious about everything to do with the game. Uh, probably didn't have a whole lot of time for stuff around me that was moving too slow or people who weren't into it as much as I was. If they were into everything else and I was into, I was like Kentucky Fried Chicken. I did chicken, that's all I did. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't into everything else. Um, so I could see myself coming off that way and, and uh, I was able to work five-star basketball 
camp at that point, which started building my own self-esteem and uh, in the profession and being able to coach because I learned from the greats, you know, from Hubie Brown to Mike Fratello, some of the great clinicians of all time, uh, George Raveling, they'd all come through that camp and you, you could learn from them. But uh, I can honestly say you, it was a great time for me in my life. Um, you know, there were no worries. You didn't make anything, but you had no worries. It was just solely you were falling in love with the thought of coaching and the thought of this game. And, uh, you know, I'm, the start I had is a big reason why I was able to be at Kentucky. What? I started at Kansas. I mean, if you started a Division II school or Division III school. You don't know it, any better. You, well, no, you just, it's hard to break through. Okay. Uh, I tell coaches looking back on my career, they say, well, what, what would be your suggestion? Don't worry about money. Stay at the highest level as long as you can. So there may have been a point that I got married and I couldn't stay there, so I had to go back. More than likely, I would have stayed there. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to do something at the highest level, you don't worry about money. You worry about experience. You worry about your mentors. You worry about all the things that are that path to then you get a break. Now, maybe you don't get a break and you get married and have kids and you can't deal with it anymore. So you have to go, look, I got to make money at some point. One of those things. I got a family. I was never in that position and, you know, I got married after I had a full-time job and, and all those things. How direct are you with your players? Direct. They, um, they come here because they want me to keep it real. Now, they don't always like when I keep it real with them, personally, but I try to be, tell them if you do that, you're not playing. I'm just telling you right now, this is how I need you to play and how you need to play for you like this. If you do that and when they do it, stop. That's what's going to get you out of a game. Don't say I take you out for errors. I take you out when you do something like that, when you know better, but you can't help yourself. Then you're going to come out of the game. I tell them if they take a crazy shot, make it because maybe I'll leave you in, but you better make it. <laughs> and the chances of them making that crazy shot are slim and none, so they normally won't take it. But I try to keep it real. I mean, if a guy is enthusiastic and this and this, but his numbers are like, look at your numbers. You're playing hard, you're doing this, you're never getting a rebound, you're not blocking the shot, you're not doing anything, you don't deserve to be out there. And you gotta, you gotta earn that right. I don't, I can do that because I never promise anybody starting positions, minutes, shots, yeah, we're gonna run the offense through you, we're gonna put your name in the rafters. I don't promise anybody that, never have, never back from my UMass days. So I can keep it real. Um, if a kid doesn't earn a starting spot, he doesn't, sp he doesn't start. Um, we've probably started in my time 25 to 30 freshmen. So if you're good enough, I play freshman, but you better be good enough. What's the biggest challenge in having so many talented players on one team? That, w that was one year I did that. And the challenge was how do I make sure everyone eats? Not how do I make sure Carl Anthony Towns is the number one pick. So by doing that, every decision I made had to be about how do I get these guys to share? How do I get them to understand it's not about volume? It's about efficiency. I hired 
uh, analytics guy, that we did our stats daily and weekly and game time by efficiencies, not by volume numbers. Um, I had to get the, the, the players uh, to really understand what we were trying to do together and in 20 minutes they could feel full. Be who you are. No one on our team was the same. It wasn't like I had three players exactly the same. They were all different. And what ends up happening, they all eat. We win almost every game we play, set a record, was, had an historic season, and seven of them go on to the NBA. The other three come back, one by injury, the others because they needed to, and they'll be in the NBA. So all 10-8, and Carl was still the number one pick <laughs> of the draft, and four were in the lottery. So that's the challenge of what we do. Are there times you won't start your best team on the court because there are certain guys that you believe deserve to play? But I will tell you that maybe a really good player has to come off the bench because he doesn't match with the team and how they play. And he's better off coming off the bench, coming right in and doing it versus starting with this team and it kind of gets us a little screwed up. So there are combinations. Now we keep that though. So we have combinations and how they do. Now, last year was just different. I mean, I had to play 10 guys. How do you play 10? You can't substitute 10 and, you know, shuffle. You can't do it. It's not, any coach knows you can't do that. And why? Because no one ever gets in a rhythm. Your team never gets any continuity. They never get the chemistry they need because you just keep shuffling. Okay. And why are you doing it? To be smart or I want it to be about me, so I'm going to shuffle everybody and it's about my substitutions. This isn't about me. This is how do I get individual players to play their best? How do I get a group of players to be for one another? You got to figure out how do I do this and succeed and not at the expense of these kids. These parents are putting their children to my care. I don't take it lightly. Some of them come from generational poverty. Their family and the history of their family have never been in anything but poverty. Right. And this young man comes along and has a genius, just like a pianist, just like Jordan Spieth's genius. He only stayed one year in college. He ruined college golf. Did you know that? Just like Steve Jobs, just like Bill Gates, these young men have a genius. My job is to get them to chase the genius and don't be afraid. If I walk in a home and a, I asked a young man, what do you want to be? I'd like to be an NBA player someday. Well, why are you embarrassed about that? Why would you be embarrassed? Because we make them feel that it's dirty. Why? Why not chase it? And if they go after a year and they can make it, what's the issue with that? Or they go after it and they fall a little bit short. They have no regrets. They did what they chose to do. They went after it. They had every opportunity. So the whole point for us, get in, man. Right. We'll help you get in and we'll help you be prepared. But then it's on your shoulders to go prove who you are and what you're about. And I want to talk to you about that more momentarily. But uh, first, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about your schedule and how you motivate yourself. Um, a couple people close to you told me they don't know how you get everything accomplished in a day that you get done. How do you manage your schedule? You know, I, I think. Um, we're all organized in a way we're comfortable with. 
Like there are certain things that I know I got to get done. There are important things and there are urgent things. And urgent things are phone calls and other things that I can put off and I do at a later date. Uh, I try to answer all calls. I do some things a little bit different. Like uh, if you send me a handwritten note, you will always get a handwritten note from me. Um, if you send me a letter, more than likely I'm going to send you a handwritten note. Um, the other thing, the players are always the most important to me. So whatever I'm doing, if a player walks in, I stop the meeting, I stop who I'm with, I get off a phone call, come on in here, let me see you. They need to see me. I, that's why I'm here. That's what I do. My main job is how do I care for these kids because they're someone's child. And so I just, I, I like doing three and four things in a day. I feel like I accomplished something. I'm going to say it again. There's no crying on the yacht, okay? I am doing it privately. But I am getting three and four things done before I go home. I feel fulfilled when I do that. Now, I don't know where that comes from or why, but I do. How much do you delegate? Probably not enough. I hire people who are strong in areas that I'm weak, but the things that I do, I do myself. So I don't delegate those. I take on all ideas. They end up being mine, but I accept all ideas. I give no credit. I just take them. People around me laugh. I say, I really like that idea. Now that's mine. Um, but I want people like the social media. We've had to hire a guy. First it was Eric and now it's Mets. Uh, they still both work on it. I don't have a computer. You have nearly a million and a half Twitter followers and you don't even know no how to use a computer. computer. If you walk in my office, <laughs> you'll see there's no computer. I don't know how to turn on a computer. I start looking for but I don't know how to do it. But there's nothing that goes out on that, the tweets or my Facebook that I didn't do or call on. So when you say, do I delegate? Everything I don't want to do, I delegate. The stuff that I enjoy doing, I do myself. Um, but I will, the things like game day, they'll tell you. They tell me when the bus is leaving. I don't need to know anything else. What time do you need me on that bus? That's all I need to know. I don't need to know a... I'll go to the shoot around, but the meals and all that, don't tell me because I'm not coming to them. I don't need to know. What time does the bus leave? Bang, everyone else take care of everything else. Speaking of game day, explain why you started walking into games smiling and how that's helped. Well, I was, I was at UMass at the time and I was probably 30 some years old, 32, 33 maybe. And a good friend of mine is Mike Godfrey. And uh, we're like 19 and 0 or 20 and 0, whatever it was, 19 and 0. And uh, he calls me and says, Cal, listen to me. I'm watching you in these games. You're walking in. I can see it on your face. You got to smile. You got to enjoy it. And if you do, your players are going to enjoy it. And every, you're gonna, they're going to feel your looseness, even if you're not. You got you to really project so I started walking into games and, and I'd be smiling and laughing and one of the staff would say, hey, what do you think about this and this? And I'd start laughing and say, what are you laughing about? It wasn't something I should have laughed at. I'm laughing because I wanted the, the players. It not only affects your own team, it affects the other team. It affects the officials. What, are you scared to death? Oh my gosh. Or are you coming in like, let's go, let's go ball. Let's go have some fun. Let's go do this. 
So I've read you're very superstitious. That's true, right? Not as bad as I used to be. I'm, I go to mass more now, so I don't have to be as superstitious, I think. And as I go to mass, the people that know me, like, you shouldn't be doing that anymore. That's That works against everything you're saying. So here, here are examples I've at least heard of in the past that uh, you would not start a player who cut his hair on game day? Yeah, you can't do it. A game day haircut, you're out. You um, you, there was a period where you were eating only fast food chili? I did that for a while. It was good, though. It was good chili. And then if you're winning in a tournament, sometimes you won't change your clothes? No, I change, the... no that, okay. that's not true. Okay. But the other stuff. And, and, <laughs> I mean, the other and, two are bad enough. And so. there, was, there was oatmeal at every breakfast. Okay. No raisins. If you put raisins in the oatmeal, I would go bonkers. Anytime there's raisins, you lose every time. We were 27 <laughs> and 0. I walk in and there's raisins in the oatmeal. Literally grab the oatmeal, throw it against the wall. You did not. What? I threw it against the wall <laughs> and we lost the game at home. We had a 50 game win streak and we lose the game. I knew we were going to lose. I think I got thrown out of the game for not saying anything. You go ahead. You put. Any coach out there that wants to lose, you make sure they put raisins in the breakfast oatmeal. You, you'll go down. Don't worry about that. But the superstitions are gone now. No, nah, I still, you what, know. What, what are they now? I, you know, for some reason, I've always, if I find a bobby pin, wherever I am, if I'm walking down the street and I find a bobby pin, the good Lord's telling me something good. And it's, and I pick up the bobby pin and I have it and I have them all on my desk up there. So I have bobby pins everywhere. So You saved them all? I, yeah, they're in my coat. I'll take them out and put them over here. Sometimes I leave them in my coat, you know, and I'll feel, oh, we're going to be good tonight, you know, and it's, it doesn't have any effect on anything. There were people, there was a time where my in-laws came to a couple games and we lost. So what did I say? What you, they, I don't want them there. I told my wife. I thought you were going to say so, there were no, raisins I didn't want in them their there. And they're the, nice, they're the nicest people, but I didn't want them at the game. I mean, you, if they, you come to the game after. You really I'll asked them the not hotel. to come? Well, what happened was we were playing St. Louis. I'm sure Lewis. that goes over great with Ellen. She would get so mad. My parents aren't the reason we're losing. Yes, they are. We're winning every game until they come. So we're playing St. Louis. And Charlie Spoonhauer, rest his soul, one of the great men of all time, they want to come to that St. Louis game in St. Louis. I don't want to leave them tickets or we're losing the game. So I asked <laughs> Charlie to leave them tickets. Can you leave them tickets? No, and Charlie left them tickets, and what happened? <laughs> Charlie lost. I told him at the final four, I hate to tell you what I did to you, but I, I mushed you. I knew it was a mush. Now I'm like, um, I bring him to final fours. I bring him to the, they were at the national championship game. They don't want to come because they know I, I said, would you stop? I was 30 years old when I was doing that. So you're the master recruiter of all recruiters. You've had five straight number one recruiting classes. Uh, in the four years prior to you coming to University of Kentucky, I think there was only one McDonald's All-American, 19 first round draft picks. 2012 national championship, the final four you've been to and four of the past. So tell me, five tell seasons. me, you, you tell me, why do you, if you had a son that was had pro potential, had a chance of being a really good player, um, why would you want him here? I mean, tell me what would lead you to want him here. My personality. I mean, think, it's your son. The statistics. Yeah, it's results. Why? It, it wouldn't be anything I'm trying to do to entice you. It wouldn't be anything I'm saying to your son by promising. Why would I promise anything? Here are the results. One, one young man asked me, 
can you do for me what you did for Derrick Rose? You know what my answer was? Are you that good? If you're that good, I'll do exactly what I did for Derrick Rose. But if you're not that good, I'm going to do what I can do for you to make you be the best player you can be. How key is marketing to a successful program? I, I majored in business marketing. And I majored in business marketing because I thought, if I'm not coaching, what would I want to do? It would be some sort of business, leadership, sales, marketing, something to, that my curious mind could keep working daily. Um, but um, you can market all you want if there are no results. Now, people come back and say, well, and I, I laugh, you know, he just rolls out balls. He just but, but, but you can't have results and not be able to attract top talent because you do have to be able to, you know, Well, let me say this. If you have no right results way. and you market your butt off, you got nothing. Right. If you have unbelievable results and you don't even push it that much, people push it for you. If you have unbelievable results and you market it and you push it, you suck the air out of the room. Right. What's involved with pursuing a top recruit? First of all, you got to look at who do we want. Then you got to look at who wants us. A lot at Kentucky, fewer at Memphis, you, even you, fewer you, at UMass. Well, you right. think I just select. It's, that's the falsehood. And anybody in coaching knows that if that's said, it's just not true. We, character matters when you're doing what we do. When kids are depending on one another, character matters. If we see character flaws, done. We can't be in there. Um, is, is the kid play the way we want a young man to play? Does he have potential? Where are we going with him? What do you think he'll look like in a year or two? And then it becomes, do they want us? Is there things involved that we're not dealing with? Like there's, you know, a lot of times these kids have people encouraging them to go to other places. Well, we won't fight that. Like we'll say, hey, we'd like to recruit you, but we're not, we're not gonna fight that. Do what you need to do. Um, but we'll, you need to know who wants you to. Like I said, if there's any kid in the country said, my goal is to play at Kentucky, we better have evaluated him and we better know if he's good enough, we're taking him over anybody else. We're taking him. If he's not quite good enough, let's keep an eye on him and let's at least help him with other people we know. So that's kind of how I do this. So you know you want a certain player. They're interested in Kentucky, but they're also interested in a couple other schools. At that point, what's your involvement in terms of dealing with the players, in terms, you oh, know, depends to on get who the it player is. more Some interested. kids I'll, I'll spend more time on only because of I created a relationship. There's other is, is times. Is that texting or calling or uh, what? A lot, uh, both. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, I'm not on the phone as much as some coaches. And my point being, I'll say to the kid, how old are you? 17. I'm 50-ish. What in the world are we going to talk about three times a week? Other than me trying to get you to come and play for me, the conversation is not based on me trying to help you with anything. I'm just trying to get you to come to my school. Do we really need to talk three <laughs> days a week? I mean, let's not do that. You call me when you need me. If I feel like talking to you, I'll call. But don't start adding up who called me most. I'll say, are you going to go to the first person that sent you a letter? Like, that's important to you? Well, then you should go to this small school, uh, Popcorn A&I, because they sent you the first letter. Oh, I'm not going to do that. So that shouldn't matter. It's what's the best place for you. And if it's not with me, then you go somewhere else. 
if you want to drink, smoke, chase, club, you can't come to Kentucky. That stuff can go on other places and go on to the, and no one will pre- What? They'll do a 30-30 movie, extended movie on it, and the ticker if you do it here. You don't come here for that. You come to be the best version of yourself on and off the court. Why do you say your season doesn't end until the NBA draft? Because it doesn't. You can't, you can't tell me how successful my year has been until the draft's over. What if we won a national championship and not one player drafted? Let's talk about who benefited by that. Did I benefit? I mean, are the players the staying school, back in school? Did the, or school the, did the school benefit by it? Sure. Did the enrollment, did the applications, did fundraising, did the state? So you're telling me, well, they're, they're benefiting by getting educated. Really? They want to give me a bonus of $5 million. And that guy comes back to school. And if I buy him a hamburger, we're both going to jail. Think about what I'm saying. I think that this is, we're all in this to do right by you and you will do right by all of us. To what extent do you think your desire to have NBA ready freshmen enter the league, to what extent do you think that ever conflicts with the academic goals of the university? Well, we've had five years of a 3.0 grade point average. We're in the top 10 of APR and got an award through the NCAA for, our, for how our kids have done academically. We've had 14 kids graduate in six years. Pretty big number. We've had three players graduate, you ready? In three years. Two of those will be NBA. One's in the NBA, another will be in the NBA. It's not been at the extent of academics. Here's what I tell them. A curious mind is gonna make you a better basketball player. You, you discipline yourself to do things you're uncomfortable doing. This all helps you later. An educated man does not get robbed and will not be fooled. You educate yourself, you read, you do things. They can always come back and finish up. They have a lifetime scholarship here. So this kid could go Jordan Spieth and play golf and be the number one golfer, but Jordan Spieth should have went back to Texas for four years and played. He should not have come out after a year, he well, ruined college golf. But, he ruined. But not everyone's Jordan Spieth or Michael Jordan. And or, not everybody's I mean, Anthony Davis. You want me to name them all? And Michael Kidd and Carl Towns. They're not. All, I just happen to have a lot of them. So why would they come here if they're that good? Because they know I don't hold them back. This thing, you can't pigeonhole us into. They don't care about academics. You can say it enough, like. Say it over and over and it becomes true. It's just not true. Right. You could say they're not involved in the community. They don't do this and this. Well, it's not true. You well, know, it, you could, wait a minute, you sure. could say they don't connect with this university. Our players connect better than any other university's players that I know of, our players. So it's... And, and, and any head coach is going to want to get the best possible players on their team too that meets you know standards and academics would they want would they want seven or eight of all really good players or do you think they take two or three and then take some right they'd want seven or eight of the of the best players that, it's a difference in what we're doing how would you change the system though because even you don't like players being allowed to leave after just well, one year well here's of what i would say if it went to two years 
okay? Um, all their insurance disability is paid for. If in the second year, uh, their loss of value, in other words, they were a first rounder, they stayed in school, this has happened, and now they're a second rounder. And the coach that got them to stay and they drop in value will blame the kid every time. Well, that was him. No, he was where he was. If he left, that's where he'd have gone. So the NBA or someone should pay loss of value. They should get the cost of attendance. Um, they should have two flights back and forth, one to come to school, one to go home, and then Christmas in between. Their families in the NCAA tournament should be able to go back and forth and maybe pay for a flight or two for their families to come to a game. If you're gonna make them stay in school, then you gotta do expense things, not pay, you don't wanna pay them, that's fine. These are expenses, these do not make them professionals. They're still amateurs. But if you want them to stay in school longer, then you gotta do things that alleviate. How about this, if you want them to stay in school the second year, the families can take a loan. Let them take a loan. Son will pay it back in the next year. You see a problem with that? It's a problem. Can't do that. Why not? They can take a, take a loan from the NBA. What if the NBA says well, we don't want to loan them money? just like a homeowner going and saying, I go to a bank and the bank says no. But if you can get the loan, why would you say no? It's a loan. Um, so there are things that we can do and have them stay in school two years. If they're not willing to do all those things, you can't ask these kids to stay longer. And the Players Association won't go for it anyway. What do you think ultimately happens? Stays the same? Yeah. Is that a shame? Yes. I mean, this is, right, let's just look at it this way. Um, for these young people, let's just worry about them and not make them a bargaining chip. Just them and us coaches. See, we got coaches mad that these kids are leaving after a year, and I don't blame them. It makes our jobs harder. It makes our jobs harder, not what's right for them or that. So if we make all these decisions, what's best for these kids? If we truly think, think it's best for them to stay and they give up something, how do we make this so that it's obviously the best thing if you're not ready? If you're ready, go. If you're ready, go. If you're not ready, here's what we do. We're doing a combine and the NBA sat down with the Coaches Association and I was a part of that group and we sat down and said, you do a combine for all these kids. Invite them, if they're not invited, means you're not good enough to even come to the combine, go back to school. If you are invited, half of you are gonna to be told, go back to school, the other half are gonna go. Now all of a sudden, we're doing right by them and giving them the information to make the choices. Now, here's what'll happen. Some kids will not be invited to the combine. You're not good enough. And they'll still put their name in the draft. That's their choice. Right. They have a right to make that choice and make it a dumb choice. It is a dumb choice, but it's their choice. What if they then make it work? See, I didn't think Jody Meeks should have left. I thought Patrick should have left, not Jody Meeks. Patrick comes to me and says, I wanna stay. You wanna stay, why? Because I'm gonna graduate in three years, I've not been to the NCAA tournament, and you're gonna help me play as a perimeter player. Go back and read all the stuff 
Patrick has said about his time here and what we've done to help right. him. He went from the 21st pick to the 14th pick. He did right. But you know who else did right? Jody Meeks. Jody Meeks went in the second round, which I told him would happen, but he's made it. He's going to continue to make it. Right. So as much as I thought he was wrong, he made a decision for himself and it ends up being right. Uh, so as part of the preparation for this interview, I read your most recent New York Times bestselling book, which I really enjoyed. Read your earlier, earlier autobiography as well as just a slew of profiles. I don't think it was an autobiography. It just talked about me getting okay. fired. An earlier book, UMass Days, talked about uh, you getting fired, a little bit of your upbringing, also a slew of profile stories. And we have a, a pre-interview research call a couple days before the interview. And we were all talking about this, just kind of the vitriol that has been directed your way by some members of the media over the years, whether fairly or not, just kind of defies all objectivity. And there was a Sports Illustrated um, a sentence or two from SI that I thought uh, summed it up best. And I was curious to read it to you and get your reaction. It was an SI profile from a couple of years ago. And the NCAA hasn't held him accountable for any major violation. And dark rumors about his recruiting methods have never stuck. Still, no matter what good the Kentucky coach does, visiting the sick, helping at-risk kids, he's assumed to have an ulterior motive. Why do you think that is? Well, I've had a lot of success. So when you win at UMass, there's no way you did it right. When you win at Memphis, there's no way you did it right. Uh, you're winning at this level at Kentucky. You've got to be doing something. I look at it as politics. The conservatives and the liberals. There are some haters. They're going to hate me because they're conservative. And it doesn't matter what I say, what I do, they're conservative. And there, when you're that high profile, Somebody writes a good article, someone writes a bad article. Um, the liberals are going to love you, and you're trying to win over the independents. I'm now able to write my own story because I have a million three Twitter followers. I have 500,000 on the Facebook. When I write something, more people read what I write than the articles written by some of these newspapers. So I don't get caught up in what they think, and early on, I probably did some things and said some things to reporters because I thought they were unfair and I didn't take it laying down and they've never forgot. So they have such an obsession with me that they just continue to write their stuff. I'm not going to change them. I don't care. My whole thing is, can I sleep at night? I do sleep like a baby. Am I doing right by these kids? I feel I am. Uh, am I perfect? No. Am I a sinner? absolutely am, which is why I go to Mass in the morning. I know what I am. I don't try to make myself to be this. And when people come at me with some of that kind of garbage, I say, whatever you think I am, I agree. Can we move on? I mean, I, I'm just not going to respond to it. I mean, it's, it is what it is. Just speaking to, you know, like Memphis, for example, they were going to honor you. Uh, recently as part of the Hall of Fame, uh, you know, celebration and then end up deciding not to because of fan outrage. Why, like, what's your reaction to that one was like, like, oh, well, yeah. Um, all I know is at the Hall of Fame, does, I mean, does 15, it get to you, any of it? I had 15 or 20 friends from Memphis fly in to right. be with me 
my close friends. I think I had 20 players. Uh, another seven or eight were playing in Europe and couldn't get there that all sent me notes. And, 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 and so I'm not worried about a vocal. Those could have been you, Mississippi fans. See, when you're in Memphis, you have Tennessee fans, Mississippi fans, Arkansas fans, Vanderbilt fans, and you're trying to survive. So you don't know who they were, but whatever they were, the, obviously the university listened, and I'm good with it. I mean, when you, when you talk about all that's going on and the things that have happened for me, I've been blessed. If there's a couple hiccups like Memphis, the other stuff is so far beyond, it's just, I've been blessed. In the remaining moments I have with you, I want to talk about a couple notable moments from your career, most noteworthy, the 2012 National Championship. Uh, you know, what surprised me in reading about it, it seemed like both before the game and then after you won, you were almost downplaying the personal significance of winning it. Why was that? Well, everybody, it was funny. Uh, uh, a radio guy comes up to me before the game and he says, how do you feel about being the best coach to never win a national title? And I went, was that a compliment? What is that? <laughs> so after the game, he comes up, how do you feel about being the worst coach to ever win a national <laughs> title? I mean, I, again, I looked at my wife. Everybody else made this a big deal that I had to win a national title. My wife and I are looking at each other. It's not going to change who we are and what we do. And when she came up on the stage, I said to her, that is done. Now we can get on with what we do. And she, she laughed and said, you're right. But, but you wrote in your book, I mean, you were almost uncomfortable in, in not enjoying being up there right after you Well, I left the it. court. Right. I left it, the court, let the players celebrate. Th that's what Dwayne said to me. Th yeah. Like, right after the trophy presentation, you literally leave the court as people are celebrating and people had to look for you. And I changed and I did what I do after games and I didn't make it a big deal and, and I went in and, and my thing is that was about those kids. Look, I am in the seat in this program. I am not Kentucky's program. I'm the head basketball coach at Kentucky. When you try to make the program you or your family, this is our family's program. This is then you're taken away from all these kids and what they're trying to do. And how, my opinion, my humble opinion, I just want this. I am the head coach here. How long I'm going to be the head coach here? I know it's not going to be 40 years. I would end up being 100, okay? So it's not going to be the run that Coach Rupp had. But while I'm here, what do I do with the seat? To help others, to get involved with causes, to use this position to help as many families told you I went from the business of basketball to the business of helping families how many families can I help before I retire right now current contracts including my Memphis guys Tyreek and Derek Rose and Sean and is over a b b b billion dollars of created wealth now that's not endorsements I didn't say from 1970 current they're in the league playing right now is over a billion dollars not shoe deals, their NBA contract. My goal before I retire, I want to be walking in to the NBA All-Star game. And half of the NBA All-Stars have played for me. Right now, I've got four under the age of 27. I got to get eight more in the next five or six, seven years. We have 
six other guys or seven that it went to their second contracts and are pretty good numbers that are on the edge of all-star. So maybe one or two or three are those. And then the guys coming in over the next four to five years. Could you imagine if 12 of the 24 NBA all-stars played for me? That's my goal. Now tell me what would happen for this program, for my staffs, for the championships, if that's the case. That's a lot of really good players. And the backwash to that becomes the program's on the high that it's never been on. You're winning more national titles. You're winning more games. Your assistants are becoming head coaches. The university's building new buildings and grazing more money. And the state legislature is so happy with the university that this is place has never. You do understand, and I'm not saying it's because of basketball. Test scores have never been higher. Enrollment's never been higher. And in, 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 uh, 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 people applying to this university, the test scores, all this stuff is going up. We just build, and we got a great president, Dr. Capilouto. I'm not saying it's all basketball, but everywhere I've been, when that program goes like that, the university holds on and says, let's take our stuff. We're the front porch of a great place, but we're a front porch, everybody sees us. The NBA, obviously the reports you know, not too long ago about you negotiating with the Cavs, you end up deciding to stay here. Um, it's the one place you haven't had the degree of success you've obviously had in the college ranks. Yeah, you could, you to, could say that, but, and I did get fired, but we took a program that was kind of like the Clippers at the time. Right. We took the Nets when they were in New Jersey to the playoffs, um, to the highest finish in their conference. Had the lockout year, have injuries, and the next year I'm fired. Let me go back and right. tell you this, too. Had no idea what I was doing. Didn't play in the NBA, hadn't coached in the NBA, hadn't been an assistant in the NBA. Watched some games. Had no idea what I was doing. But we did all right for not knowing what we were doing. To, to what extent do you think before you stop coaching, you'd like to be an NBA head coach again? That's not a burning desire for me. My time in the NBA... I loved it. It made me a better coach. I have great relationships with people. I hired some bad people. One of the things you learn, you, you better surround yourself with everybody on the same page. But I learned great lessons from it. Um, but my thing right now, I told you what my goal is. Um, I told you it's about helping families. So how would I create joy in the NBA? Helping an owner make more money, winning a championship for a city. I mean, what, what, are you changing the families? How, you know, if I were in the NBA, my whole goal would be, I want everyone on my team to get a max contract at some point. I want you all to get max, max contracts, which means only two or three of you are gonna be here. I'm okay with that. We're gonna do everything we can that someone else is gonna to have to pay you that we can't pay you. And we're gonna be happy and we're gonna bring in another wave and we're gonna do the same thing. It's the only way I would enjoy it and I don't think anybody hired me if they knew it. I mean, it wouldn't be, it, it's, it's different in that everyone eats except your stars eat more. Like LeBron's gonna eat more, he just is. And so you gotta factor that in. But for me to have joy, there'd have to be something that that I would do or say, I have to do something here in this community. What are we doing? It's not just the joy to just coach in basketball doesn't do it for me. 
I enjoy coaching. Like I go to practice and seeing guys get better and, and piecing a team together and then playing a chess match with the other coach, trying to figure out how do we gain our advantages? How do we outwork this guy? How do we out strategize what he's trying to do? How do we combat? But the reality of it is the overarching thing for me, the joy isn't the win. Sometimes the joy, the wins become like, whew, that's not joy. Like, whew, we just won, let's move on. The losses are devastating. So you gotta get joy from something. And my joy is what I just said. And, and if I could do that, I don't see it. Um, I don't need the money. Um, I don't think you, you know, the honors that I've had change. The most satisfying moment from your career to date would be what? You know, not ever been asked that. I mean, um, when I was at UMass and, and we beat Arkansas and they were number one in the country and we're trying to come on the scene. Um, really was satisfying um, because you built something out of nothing. You got it going, you, you did some stuff. Um, but again, I, I would say away from the court, my satisfaction and joy is when I'm in that green room and everybody gets mad. He's only doing that for recruiting. I don't have to be in the room for them to know we have all these draft picks. But I will say this. It's a, it's a, to get there, to spend two days there, to go through the green, it's hard to do, so you know, not everybody wants to do it. But to be in there, it's like saying, well, I'm not gonna go to your graduation because it's about you. What? No, I go to the graduation of my kids and my, I go to those things, I go to those special moments. And being in that room with those kids, Unbelievable satisfaction. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.